Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our text today is one verse. If you've been around a while, you know what that means. Buckle up. Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Bradley. Thank you, band, for leading us today. Romans chapter 15, verse 1, fam. We are back in Romans. I'm grateful. This is a home stretch uh, for many of us who have been navigating this text, I think, for about four years. Um, so I'm grateful to be back in it. And I, there are some Sunday mornings I wake up and my heart does not align, if you will, with the uh, text that we are teaching from or the sermon that's been prepared. Um, and not, not that I disagree with it, but I'm in a different emotional space than this text. You ever feel like that? Like I'm just like in a different emotional space than what I got to do today. Because what I want to do today is hug you. And I want to give you high fives and I want to show you love and I want to just be chill. Um, but it seems like what the Lord has asked for is for me to take out a scalpel a little bit and to dissect something um, within our hearts and minds. And I do believe that that's loving. Uh, it's incredibly loving for a doctor to operate on us for our good. And I think that's what the Lord is. He's a good physician. He's a really, really good um, at what he does. And I think today he desires to divide out something that we often um, have a hard time seeing distinction is in. in. Um, if you remember, we left off our study before the summer Paul was going to great lengths to help us understand that our unity as God's people is really important, in particular for our witness within society, that, that one of the greatest things we can demonstrate to the world is people who live at peace and honesty and humility uh, with each other. And particularly, he drew our attention to the fact that within the church family, we're all at different stages, different understandings, different places in our faith. Some of us perhaps grew up in a Christian environment. Others of us are the very first Christian um, in our family. Uh, others still, not yet even followers of Jesus and just trying to navigate uh, a spiritual community. Um, and if you remember, <clears throat> within the first century church in Rome, some Christians in particular, the way this was manifesting for them, they sensed uh, spiritual conviction about eating meat, while others within the church family were totally chill with eating anything and everything, right? And so what Paul wanted to do or what he was doing was comparing those who have experiences with a kind of freedom from the law uh, of Christ, those he calls strong, with those that feel this sense of obligation to the old rules or old regulations whom he calls weak. Now, he's saying they're both Christians, and they're both in the same family. They both gather together at ICI every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and they've got to learn to do life together. See, Paul understands that as a new church was taking shape, these differences had this potency to divide them. They had this, this um, capacity to separate, and he wanted to make sure that as this new community in Rome was, was budding, was growing, that that didn't divide them, but it actually helped to create unity. This is not unlike our story in Chicago. This month, we are five years old, and that means that we have a lot of little budding theologians and ideas and doctrines and social viewpoints that easily could divide, that easily could separate, whether our families, our groups, our entire church body. And so this is incredibly timely for us to consider. So Paul instructs them in verse uh, 1 of chapter 14 to welcome each other, 
not to despise each other, if you remember, not to judge each other in verse 3, but to build each other up by the time it gets to verse 19. That's what we've been learning too. Church, we must be so careful to not be critical toward one another because we have different viewpoints. Not to immediately judge someone because they've arrived to a different conclusion about a passage or about an idea. Because as Paul writes in Romans 14, verse 17, so if you're in verse 1, you can look back up from there or turn to the left a little bit. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, thanks be to God, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, God wants us to understand and live in the light of the reality that it is always, always, always better to show love than to be right or to win. Are you with me? It is always, always, always better to show love than it is to win. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? And here's where we need to take out the scalpel. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Doesn't that sound exactly like something, especially if you have lived in a progressive city like Chicago for very long? Doesn't Paul's instruction sound a lot like tolerance? Doesn't it sound a lot like, you know, this modern concept of coexisting because we have more in common than in distinction. See, even though Paul has faithfully grounded his encouragement and instruction in the gospel in Christ's character and death and resurrection and lordship, at the end of the day, doesn't it seem like the great apostle is going to great lengths to communicate something that comes really naturally to modern people? This should make us incredibly curious. Why is Paul writing a New Testament letter inspired by the Holy Spirit to do something which I look out in a modern world that does not know him, love, follow Jesus, or know his word, they do it kind of naturally. And in fact, this is one of their clarion calls. See, even our verse today invites those who are strong or powerful, who are in the majority, to consider the failings or weaknesses or needs of the marginalized in order to cultivate rich community and equality. That's basically tolerance. So, is there any difference? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the beauty and the limits of secular tolerance. In other words, how does the life Jesus demands both naturally affirm as we agree with, but also reach beyond what it's capable of through tolerance? How does it ultimately then point us to a greater joy? Now, why would we talk about this? Why would we make sure we understand this distinction? Well, first of all, because I think that's what Paul is saying was really vital in their cultural moment, but also because Modern tolerance is the prevailing spiritual sentiment of our society. Whatever non-religious, progressive people are thinking, particularly those who live in a city like Chicago, is that ultimately the virtue of faith, the virtue of religion, of spirituality, or of any worldview is purely personal. Now, that's really intriguing to the follower of Jesus who believes that we have a, a Lord who sits on a throne who's ruling and reigning and bringing a kingdom not just to individual hearts, but to an entire planet, an entire existence, entire human race, an entire cosmos, right? So it's important conversation for us to understand what we can affirm about that idea, what we must reject, and what it really looks like to live as loving neighbors to God's glory. So here's how we'll organize our time. We'll uh, look at tolerance as beautiful, Tolerance is limited and tolerance is a signpost. Tolerance is beautiful, tolerance is limited, and tolerance is a signpost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're really good. Your plans never fail. Your wisdom is eternal and good and unshakable. 
So would you ground us in that today, in your truth, in your beauty, in your word, and in your very self as our Heavenly Father. Help us to be good children who hear what their Father has to say, and then we do it for your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul uh, transitions from a really long explanation about how we're supposed to treat each other within community by giving a bit of a summary statement here, I think, in Romans chapter 15. Look at it in verse 1. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now that phrase, there's two words there in English, is actually one word in Greek, bear with, is bastazo. It means to carry, to support, to endure. So Paul intends that those who are in positions of freedom from the law and, and power within the community should willfully carry the burdens or weaknesses or failings, as it's translated in many of our Bibles, which are not their own. They should suspend looking down on those who do not see the world as they do. The strong, in fact, are supposed to willingly take on their plight, their situation, and their weaker brother or sister. In other words, the strong should tolerate the weak. And this is beautiful. I think it's instinctively beautiful to Christians and non-Christians or those who have a completely entirely different worldview for a few reasons. So the first, and tolerance, before we get to the first, we have to like, admit that tolerance sounds really negative like this sort of loveless putting up with. But I don't think that's the idea that Paul is getting out. And I think if we're honest and if we are kind toward many of our Chicagoan neighbors, that's not their idea of tolerance either. It's to just put up with, to just deal with being next to. See, this idea of tolerance is built on a social concept of toleration. Toleration is a refusal to impose punitive sanctions for dissent from a prevailing norm or policy, or a deliberate choice not to interfere with the behavior of which you disapprove. That's actually beautiful. That's really loving. That sounds a lot like community. So toleration is about creating space within society for distinction and disagreement. Now, the church by and large has not been about that idea. We've been about find people who dissent, attack them, convert them, throw them in church, and particularly we've done this in some egregious ways as it relates to race. But you see, it's not and that we should be ignorant of our disagreements. That's not what tolerance is all about. It's that we should not judge or punish each other for our disagreements. It reminds me what late Dr. Uh, Tim Keller said about tolerance. He said, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how our beliefs lead us to treat people who disagree with us. See, as a social ideology, then tolerance is beautiful. It's a way of seeing the fullness of someone's value and nature regardless of the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, their ethnic heritage, their religion, their gender, their sexuality, or their beliefs, their thoughts, their education, their ethics, or what days they call holy, as Paul has said, or what kind of food they eat and what kind of food they don't. Now, for some of us, that's mad uncomfortable because they're wrong and we want to tell them, right? This is what Paul has been talking about for an entire chapter, is to interrogate that impulse. See, as Christians, we can say yes and amen to treating others, especially our opponents, with respect and dignity, because everyone is precious. Everyone has a story. Everyone is valuable and more valuable than the accuracy and mutuality of their ideas. Everyone is made of the matchless materials of the image of God and of his quality. That's the first reason why tolerance is beautiful. Tolerance is beautiful because it sees the unimpeachable value of people. That sounds a lot like love. And so we see Paul 
wants his readers to live within the bounds of love. Back in chapter 13, he said, the law. This isn't simply a vow to suspend judgment, but a commitment to take ownership of the needs of others. This idea is consistent in our cultural value system, equally steady in the writings of Paul. See, near the end of his correspondence to Galatia, church in the first century, he encourages them similar when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. At the heart of tolerance is is self-understanding. In Galatians and in Romans, Paul is articulating a vision for life which is wrapped up with those who you do life with, who you worship with, those you're in community with, in connection with. You see, though we all bear the image of God, we bear this image together. You bear it individually, but the fullness of that image was always meant to show up in community. See, our inherited value is a community gift. When God speaks this truth over the first couple, Likely Moses records it, and he speaks about this and over both of them at the same time. Genesis chapter 2. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Hear this, male and female, he created what? Them. Them. The image of God he created them. The strong are obligated to the weak because the strong and the weak are a family. And a good and healthy family. I realize we all have different experiences with family. This is the quintessential beautiful picture of family where we take care of one another. That's the second reason tolerance is beautiful. Tolerance is beautiful because it constructs an identity, a personal identity through community. No one is meant to journey alone. We're in this together. On the whole, even non-religious people value the richness of community, of relationships. And the Scripture's articulation of our personhood, our behavior towards one another, embodies this reality. A woman named Jane Jacobs realized the beauty of community one day when she looked down from her New York City apartment and she saw a man struggling with a younger woman. And as Jacob started to make her way down, she noticed that she was going to go down and help her. She noticed that the butcher had already started to approach the struggle. And then she saw a locksmith come out of his uh, shop and a man from behind a fruit stand and a couple of people came out from the laundromat all descending on the incident to help take care of this young woman. In other words, they all obligated themselves to someone else. They understood themselves not just as individuals, but as a community. Jacobs later wrote about her experience. She said, that man didn't know it, but he was surrounded. I love that. That man didn't know it, but he was surrounded. Everybody was like, that's my neighbor. That's my person. I'm them. They are me. We're in this together. See, tolerance is beautiful because it constructs an identity through community. Paul continues with the cost. You know, community is always costly. There's always a kind of sacrifice of sharing burdens and a type of loving relationship or tolerance like this. In fact, it's the cost that I think often is the thing, the barrier that keeps us from living in this kind of community. Notice what Paul says in the latter half of verse 1 in Romans 15. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and hear this, and not to please ourselves. Wouldn't you love if he stopped? He stopped at the comma and didn't add that. If it was possible to bear with the burdens of someone else and still get everything that I wanted. You see, in order, though, to carry the burdens of another, I have to put something down. I have to put something down. Now, Paul's not saying that you cannot enjoy pleasure or comfort or excess. He's not saying those things are evil. Rather, as scholar Leon Morrison puts it pretty bluntly, he says we are never to do what pleases us regardless of its effect on other people. In other words, you can't just always say, well, I wanted to, or it was good for me, or I liked it, 
even though your neighbor, your friend, your brother, your sister is suffering. See, when we're in community with each other, there's necessarily a laying down of personal preferences for the sake of that community, and that's beautiful. It's inspiring, it's hopeful, it's comforting. We see this type of sacrificial love woven throughout the fabric of our stories, our movies, our shows, and our books. This little book called Harry Potter might be a spoiler alert if you haven't heard about it or read this book yet, but J.K. Rowling uh, captures the beauty of self-denial or self-sacrifice. Dumbledore explains to Harry, your mother died to save you. If there is one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign to have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. See, Paul is inviting us to, into a self-giving, a burden-sharing affection for one another. And Jesus put it this way in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than who? He who lays down his life for his friends. This is the third reason that tolerance is really beautiful. Tolerance is beautiful because it values self-denial or self-sacrifice. So why go through all of this? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think it's really important to acknowledge how the Christian scriptures actually affirm and give grounding to one of your deepest held virtues. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then I think it's important that we understand how a popular idea like tolerance isn't something to wholesale reject, but to interrogate and appreciate. See, we agree on the beauty of tolerance because it values people, it constructs identity through community, and it isn't selfish or myopic, but it's rather self-sacrificing. Tolerance is beautiful. But here's where we have to take out the scalpel. Here's how we have to get precise and clear. See, upon deeper consideration, the brand of tolerance, which isn't shaped by the gospel, is terminally limited. Let's go back through each of these marks of beauty and see where its limits are. And again, I I, want to do this through God's Word so that we understand the beauty and and the the expression of God's common grace in this world, but also so that we'll learn how to live as witnesses within the social fabric and dynamic of a city like Chicago. So we've considered tolerance is beautiful because it has an unpeachable value of human beings. However, modern tolerance is limited because often human value is presumed if not sometimes outright denied by the same people who postulate or speak about tolerance. See, while it's instinctive to value all life, particularly life which is threatened or in jeopardy, as Paul says, the weak, we don't really have a basis, culturally speaking, for this value. You see, while everyone values life, few non-religious Chicagoans can articulate why life is so precious, except that it might be the most advanced kind of species. Even atheist and scientist Stephen Hawkins believes and believed in demonstrating tolerance and respecting fellow human beings. Um, However, his anthropology or his understanding of human value was limited to biological existence. In an interview in 1995, Hawkins famously said that the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderately sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of among a billion galaxies. So the value is pretty limited. He has integrity in this viewpoint, but it's also exposing the limited perspective of many of our friends and neighbors. While tolerance sees the value of human beings, few have a cogent or clear understanding or logic for human life. 
when the Bible, when we look at the Bible, in passages like Romans in particular, we see a clear reason for obligating ourselves to one another's failings. The value of human life in the scriptures is defined in two ways. First, we've already mentioned that we are made in the image of God. God is supremely valuable, and the value of anything then and everything in creation is determined with, by and through its relationship with the Creator. And human beings are made to reflect, look like, and represent God. No other being in all of creation has such an intimate relationship with God, not even the angels. Secondly, Paul goes on to say in verse 4 of chapter 15 in Romans, Christ did not please himself. We'll look at more at this next week, but meaning he willfully bore the failings of humanity. This also determines your value and mine. Human beings are not only made in the image of God, but we are also the ones for whom Christ died. Our nature and our worth demonstrate a unique value within creation. So the limits of secular tolerance do not exist within the Christian worldview. Now, this should not pump you up and puff you up and go, look, we've got the answer. It should make you curious and want to investigate and walk with and help people see why they are truly valuable. It's not just something that we come up with and all decide like, hey, since we're in charge, let's just act like we're the most valuable people. No, we are valuable because we have been made in the image of God and because we are the ones for whom Christ died. This is where our unimpeachable value comes from because this is how Jesus has treated us. The second reason tolerance is beautiful is because it seeks to construct identity through community. However, Tolerance is limited, at least the secular viewpoint of tolerance, because we seem just as committed to define ourselves through isolation or independence. So there's tension here. We're a bit obsessed with discovering our true self or true identity, and that's perhaps the best way to talk about it. Instead of defining ourselves or constructing identity, we talk all the time about discovering who we are. Just think about, well, just any Disney animated movie. Let's walk through a couple, because it'll be fun and helpful. Encanto, right? contextually about a family and about a community, but the force of the narrative is all about an individual, Mirabelle, discovering that she is her own magic, right? Luca, contextually, it's about a family too, but the arc of the narrative is all about Luca discovering and accepting his identity as a sea monster and as a human boy. Moana, same. The line repeated over and over again is about individual identity. I am Moana of Matanui, right? You will board my boat, sail across the sea, and rescue the heart, restore the heart of Tefiti, right? That's about her identity. It's about her calling. Zootopia, same. Judy Hopps, reason for going to the big city of Zootopia, dream big and don't let anyone tell you that you can't be what you want to be. It's the same storyline. I know I didn't hit some of your favorites, but I thought it would be helpful to get some of your kids. It's the same storyline, though. What's more, in each of these films, what is fascinating is that the community and the family create the narrative tension. They don't actually believe in or trust or honor or see the dreams and identity of the main character until the very end. So the resolution is about the individual's self-discovered identity being accepted by the community. Baylor professor Alan Noble identifies this as the value of I am my own and I belong to myself. Noble sees this tension that values uh, this idea of creating an ethic of tolerance in Western society, but this goes directly against it. He explains that if I am my own and I belong to myself, the first and most significant implication is that I am wholly responsible for my life. Now, let's not miss this. 
The value of tolerance says I am obligated to the weak, but the value of self says I am obligated to no one. This is the limit of our modern view of tolerance with respect to identity through community. While the Christian view of self does not begin and end with self, Paul says to the Corinthian church, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So our very bodies belong to the Lord. Not only so, but Paul is saying this in the plural aspect of you. Just like our creation, our individual identity is intimately constructed with and as the people of God. In fact, we are called the body, the singular body of Christ. That means I carry the failings of you, my brothers and sisters, not only because of your unimpeachable value, but because in a very real sense, your failings are my failings too. Your needs are my needs too. Your burdens are my burdens, and my shortcomings are your shortcomings. And what we need together, we all need individually. Are you with me? We are obligated to one another because we're a family because we're a body, because we're a people, because we're a spiritual house. All of these, Peter goes nuts over all of these in First Peter chapter 2. So we don't just, as an action, carry the burdens of others, but as an identity, I carry them because we are in this together. Finally, we said that tolerance is beautiful because it fosters self-denial and self-sacrifice. Or we might say it decenters the self, and real community is always costly. In particular, Paul says in Romans 15 that this brand of togetherness will cost you something, and he says, what pleases you. See, in shouldering the burdens of our sisters and brothers, we are simultaneously invited to release something that we want or enjoy. Now, what this means is that along the road of following Jesus, you will lose something that right now you call precious. And in fact, if you've never lost anything precious... In following Jesus, you probably are not following him. It's at least a question we should ask. Because if if we follow the one who says, pick up your cross and follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. We likely are going to lose some things along the way. We likely right now have something we're trying to grip tightly and the Lord's like, you got to let it go. You got to let it go. It's like my kids at a yard sale, right? They haven't seen those toys in 10 years, but as soon as we're about to give it away, I love that thing and that thing loves me, right? We do that too. As soon as it comes to cost, as soon as it comes to releasing that thing, this is where we find another limit of modern tolerance. The popular view of tolerance is limited by what we are willing to sacrifice. That's because self-denial flies in the face of another widely held value of the 21st century, which is simply described as self-actualization. You know what I mean? That we are inundated with messages of becoming our best self, our true self, and to reach our absolute maximum potential. While, of course, it's not bad to aspire, to steward well your life, and to do hard things, but this pursuit is always going to hit a brick wall of community. Always. See, you see, I can't be my best self if I have to keep slowing down for all these weak people around me, right? You can't be your best self. You have to keep shouldering someone else's burdens who is not picking up their own slack and carrying their own weight. Are you with me? Do you see how my my view of self-actualization is going to hit the brick wall of community within the Christian worldview? See, modern people want to help the weak, but we also want to be great. 
In fact, a lot of times our helping the week, we want to put it on Instagram so it demonstrates how great we are. So we help people to the end that it actually benefits my self-actualization story. This is where the Christian hope and the Christian message bears a significant distinction yet again from secular view of tolerance. You see, our understanding of self-actualization through the Bible is both instant, but, and it's not about striving, it's actually about dying. Let me break this down again. What's, in, what's instant? Well, the moment you and I follow Jesus, we become sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father in that second Let's think about this. The Apostle John put it beautifully when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Church, we are sons and we are daughters. And in our striving and self-actualization, the Christian understands that the greatest achievement that we could ever attain in this life pales in comparison to being a child of God pales in comparison. Church, hear this. The greatest title, accolade, identity, name that you could ever be called is son or daughter. Nothing you can achieve is better than that. Nothing. And that's yours in an instant. Think about that. This is mind-blowing. We think that anything valuable is achieved. We hunt it down. We chase after it. We earn it, right? What the scriptures say, actually, the greatest thing that you could ever achieve is a gift given. Can you imagine how much stress in your life would get washed away? How much anxiety you could let go of if the greatest thing you could ever become you realized you already were? It comes not from striving, Jesus says, but from dying. Matthew 16, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is the Christian ethic of that through death comes life, that through denial comes actualization. This is counterintuitive to the modern mind. I think that striving is what helps me to actualize as a person. The scriptures say actually it's through dying. It's not when we hold on to our pleasures that we find the good life. Rather, the good life is found when your life is given away. That's the gospel. Jesus becomes the resurrected Lord of the universe, not only by leaving the glories of heaven, he did not see equality with God, a thing to be held on to, but he released what pleased him in order to shoulder what was burdening us. He came and he died. See, when we resist the urge to always please ourselves, especially with our spiritual siblings who are in need, we find the life that Jesus calls truly life. See, tolerance is beautiful, but tolerance is limited. And so ultimately, tolerance points us to something greater. It's a signpost. Now, a signpost isn't the point. And one of the things that plagues us as a society is we stop at the sign and believe we've arrived at the summit. We've stopped at the thing that is pointing us somewhere, and we go, look what I've found, right? And any hikers out there could probably tell us, that's not fun. That's not a good idea to say, I found the sign that is pointing to the peak, and I still, and I don't, you know, go the rest of the way. That's not the point. See, rather, it points to something else. It points to what is real, what is greater, what is actual. Therefore, when it comes to tolerance, we don't need to get angry. We don't need to get despondent. We shouldn't get critical and mean-spirited. We should get curious. Where is this all pointing? What's this pointing to? What does this longing of to- that, that tolerance seems to be appeasing, what does it reveal about the human heart? So I think secular tolerance keeps us conflict-free, or at least we think that it might. 
It invites us to take this posture that all views are equal, all views are right, and they're good and self-fulfilling. And so we can live at peace within a pluralistic society where we are asked to simply lay down one thing, exclusivity and absolutism. So believing that there is only one way. The only way then, which the only way, view which is, isn't tolerated in a tolerant society is what? Intolerance is the view that claims there's only one way. In other words, to be tolerated in this age, you have to be tolerant, which is, of course, ironic because that's a single way that is being espoused is the only way that you have to live as long as you're not saying there's only one way to live. This blows the mind. You see, tolerance is feeling around for something, though, and we should stay curious and not critical. It's seeking to build a flourishing society with a beautiful ethic, but here's what is missing, truth. See, we think we can have beauty without truth. We think these two are intricately woven together, as Jesus has demonstrated in his very incarnation. But ultimately, what we realize is that beauty without truth is a mirage. See, tolerance in the modern mind is incredibly intolerant, therefore it can never claim what it promises. But when we bear with the failings of the weak, Paul says we live in harmony. Biblically, harmony or peace, is not about the absence of conflict. And this is something I think we have to be clear about as well. But it's the presence of justice. See, there's not peace in my marriage just because we're not arguing. There's not peace in our community just because we're not hurting each other. There's only peace when justice is achieved. I think this is what tolerance is ultimately pointing at, what it's really feeling for and trying to grasp. It is saying the absence of conflict will make us happy, but what the scriptures say is only justice, when it is served, will bring true harmony. See, we don't really want tolerance. That's a means to an end. What we want is peace. What we want is justice. Later in this passage, and we'll view in a couple of weeks, Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is what we desire. This is what our friends and neighbors desire, whether they can articulate it or not. See, we, when we live with gospel tolerance as a community, we point to the glory and the majesty, the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world of shalom, of peace, of oneness, of wholeness, where there is no more tears, where there is no more brokenness, where there is no more lament, there is only joy. This is what we desire. I think this is what your friends, your neighbors, our friends and neighbors are longing for. The tolerance points to something greater, but many stop at the sign and think we've arrived. Therefore, you and I as followers of Jesus, we can affirm the beauty of tolerance, of this cultural value and viewpoint, but as friends and neighbors, we want to begin to redirect it to something else, not into it of itself, but to the real thing, a real love, a real hope, a real peace, a real justice, a real world where the weak and the strong and every tribe, tongue, and nation are joined together in joyful oneness with their creator. Can you imagine? You might say, well, where does this begin? I think it begins by taking care of each other. I think it begins by looking at your small group as an extension of your own identity. It looks at your church as a family. See, Paul is actually writing to Christians at first. He's going to get to to others in just a minute in verse 2. This is why we've only looked at a single verse, is because in that single verse it's contained about our relationships. It begins with the way that we relate to one another. 
So when a group member is going through it, are you going through it? When they're, when they're grieving, are you grieving? When they've got a financial debt that they're trying to overcome, do you go, that's actually my debt too? When they need wisdom, do you step in and offer as much as you can? When they need consolation and a hug, are you there? See, it begins by looking at our brothers and sisters and saying, your burden is my burden. Your need is my need. Your weakness, your failing is mine. Can you imagine what it would be like for the world to see a society, a people, a community who began to give witness and bear witness to the thing they're longing for? A beautiful care for each other complemented by the truth of our value. A beautiful community which identifies uh, peace not as the absence of conflict but the presence of justice, not at war with itself. A beautiful decentering of self, which is at rest as sons and daughters. Can you imagine if our friends and neighbors saw real rest? We're all exhausted. Rest may be one of the most powerful witnesses we could give to a city like Chicago. I don't believe anything they teach at that church, but man, they are at rest. They seem like they're content. I can't argue with that. That's something that I long for. Paul is saying, that when we love each other well, when the strong bear with the failings of the weak, we point to the beauty and truth of Jesus Christ. We point to the beauty of our God and the truth of his gospel. So tolerance becomes a signpost pointing to ultimate harmony, not just within the church today, but harmony that we long for too. One that when Jesus returns, it will no longer be something we're feeling around for, but something that we know full well. A full love, a full peace, full justice, full oneness with our Creator. So let's bow and ask for His help in this. Heavenly Father, sometimes I can cast aside a cultural idea as just wrong because it's not being footnoted with a verse and doesn't sound Christian enough. That devalues your common grace, the grace you extend to all of your creation. And so would you help us to be savvy neighbors, thoughtful witnesses, winsome friends and family members who remain curious to see your love and truth brought together and wed as one as they should be. We pray for our friends and neighbors, those who are really longing for something that they can't quite touch, that they can't quite reach. May we not be a church who's critical who condemns and critiques and judges as if we know, as if we have arrived, as if we are strong and better. Forgive us how often we do that. But would you help us to take care of each other in such a way that it bears witness to the world about what they're longing for? That the signpost will no longer be the thing we settle for, but we long for the real and the true and the full picture of your grace your love and your mercy. So would you empower us as a church family, as groups, as families, as individuals, for your glory, our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.